0: We live in a society and a cultural context in which victimhood confers invulnerability. There is a competitive victimhood reality. And I think when you point that out, people get really upset. You're saying, well, should should we not care for victims? I'm saying, no, if you want to care for real victims, don't incentivize victimhood. The thing that will keep real victims from being actual cared for, cared for well is if everybody is trying their best to be put in the victim bucket. Cause if you get there, you get the steering wheel. Everybody <laughs> will have to do what you say, right? Cause, because the people that will actually end up getting the steering wheel and getting their way are not the, are not actual people who have been damaged and want to be faithful, right? Who, who have been abused and just want to be healed. It'll be opportunists and it will be victim ad- advocates who are opportunists who will immediately try to jump on and steer that ship. And so you don't want to incentivize that.
1: Welcome to the Plain Speech Podcast. I'm Michael Clary. You're going to love this interview that I have for you today with Dr. Joe Rigney, who is a fellow of theology at New St. Andrews College in Moscow, Idaho. And Dr. Rigney is also one of the speakers at the King's Domain Conference coming up in April in Cincinnati, Ohio and the theme of the conference is gendered virtue men and women who take dominion and it's going to be about helping men and women know what god's design is for sexuality and how they can live it out in their personal life and in their households marriages as parents grandparents as children it's going to cover the themes of sexuality as it applies to the household and the speaker lineup is fantastic dr rigney will be there michael foster Toby Sumter, Shane Morris, and others will be there. So please consider coming to this conference. I would love to see you there, meet you personally. And uh, if you'd like to find out more information, you can go to a website, which is genderedvirtue.com. And the cost is really reasonable. We've worked hard to keep the price low. So it's only $119 per person. And that's really good for uh, this caliber of speakers that'll be there. So I hope to see you there. Check out the conference. And then, in the meantime, enjoy this episode. Thanks for tuning in. I'm excited to have Joe Rigney with me on today's episode of the Plain Speech Podcast. Thanks for being with us, Joe. Hey, glad to be here. Well, to start us off, I have an urgent question that is on everybody's mind that we should get out of the way first. If you were a grandmother who's been invited to her gay grandson's fake wedding to a trans dude, what gift would you bring? Um,
0: jawbone. Donkeys job on. Donkeys, there
1: you go. Very
0: good. Very good. I like that. Pro, it's a or, t- test of your quick wit. <laughs> or perhaps 300 foxes and a lighter. <laughs>
1: That's right. I did an interview yesterday with Toby Sumter, and I had a, yeah. a little goofy question to start off with them, too. Um, yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, yeah, so i all joking aside, uh, thanks for being here. Um, I've, I've, so I do want to, I've, I've got a lot of serious questions I want to ask you. Um, but the, I'll start this first one off with a little background. Uh, the reason why I invited you on the podcast um, is I've, I've enjoyed your work for years. I followed your writing and um, seen you different places where you've spoken in public. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to invite you to our conference, King's Domain Conference, in April theme is gendered virtue, men and women who take dominion. But then uh, in that conversation, I had heard that you have been doing some work on how people can emotionally sabotage leaders. And I have read Edwin Friedman a couple of years ago, and was that book was very helpful. And I was super excited to see that you've been doing work on that. And as I thought about this, it's like leaders are not just senators and CEOs, but really anybody who's responsible for leading other people, including pastors and church leaders and husbands and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So uh, you sent me a draft of your book, Leadership and Emotional Sabotage, and I uh, read through it and I loved how different themes of the conference, which was the initial thing that prompted me to invite you to on the podcast, but then the book, these themes converged in in the book. Uh, and the themes are men and women were different. God made us differently, we think and relate differently, we're inclined to different sins and temptations, and we're also prone to exhibit virtue differently, and God created us to exhibit virtue differently. And then the other theme is that an ingredient of emotional sabotage that no one is willing to talk about is how this plays out between the sexes. Mm-hmm. It's like people talk about church conflicts or challenges like this as though um, there are no sexual dynamics at place. It's just, right. it just androgynous individuals uh, who are upset about something. So uh, what I wanted to ask you then is, can you just start us off by talking about chronic anxiety and how this is at the root of a lot of our problems today and how this works out in interplay between the sexes?
0: Yeah, so chronic anxiety was Edwin Friedman's term for um, a kind of systemic angst. Uh, So anxiety, we normally think about as a, um, individual thing, like I'm worried or I'm anxious, Um uh, and then and that's probably included at some level in how Friedman talks, but, uh, but really he's talking about something more, you know, systemic, which is one of those fun words that now we have to kind of flinch about because of the way it gets used, but, but there really are interrelated, um, um, we're interconnected with each other. Uh, and so the, the uh, chronically anxious system is one in which um, individual's reactions, um, sort of ping off each other. And, and it's, uh, it's just a string of reactions, just boom, 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 um, do, like what it's like emotional dominoes. And so one falls and then just, it sh- 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 just falls like that. And, uh, and so free, Friedman, you kind of use that term in his book on leadership. And it's one that I've, I've found helpful to kind of, um, get at the, the, the fumes in the air, um, that, that felt sense that like, hey, this, this place there's powder, this is a powder keg, this thing could blow, all it takes is one little match and this thing's going up. And that, that I think is something that uh, Friedman in the 90s was identifying as a, as a feature of uh, sort of our modern culture. That's where we're dealing with that. And I would say 30 years later, um, how much more? Um, I think the internet, I think, um, um, you know, just the way that things have gone, the fragmenting of culture, has just increased the angst, increased that chronic anxiety to where we just kind of live in it. And I think that some of that, we don't realize how it filters down and filters up so that our, you know, it's not just something that's sort of out there in the culture, but it's something like in your living, it's, 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 it's in the home, um, in the way that you've relate to other people and things like that, your, your spouse or your kids, it's in your church in terms of how your pastoral team functions or how you interface with, with lay people. It's in your school. It's how does the board relate to the headmaster? How does the headmaster relate to the faculty? How do faculty relate to students? How does the parents fit into all of that? Like all of these different things. There's this kind of um angst in the air. And that it has a it has a uh, um and it's kind of constantly running. It's it's not a something. So we we notice it especially when things blow up, but kind of Friedman's point was it's a perpetual feature. It's just there. And then you have these blow ups occasionally. Um, which draw attention to it, but which are often misdiagnosed. So we think that the problem was that person said something, when really it was why was there the toxic fumes in the air? Why why were we pumping that angst into the into the system in the first place? And so that it, if that's the case, then then there's particular um, being aware of and knowing about that is at one level the first step into being able to wisely address it. And so some of what Friedman was doing, and then some of what I'm trying to do in the new book uh, is, um, is to, is to lean into that way of thinking about, um, social entities, bodies, whether household, church, nation, um, and think about what does leadership look like and how does that, that chronic anxiety, that angst, that agitation and turmoil and confusion, um, how, how does it pose particular challenges? What are those challenges for leaders? And then how can you be the kind of leader who can, um, overcome and have the stamina to endure it?
1: Yeah, this, the there's, there's a quote from your book I want to read back to you that I, I, I thought it really captured this this idea well. He said, Our world demands that whole communities adapt to their most reactive, unstable, and immature members. We've turned blame-shifting and excuse-making into an art so that hardly anyone takes responsibility for themselves, their emotions, their actions, and their situation. That's like the United States of America. You know, have yeah, rights. And not just a church or family. It's it's right. this is this is culture wide. And I think you see it in the panic of twenty twenty, especially. Uh, but so many things that were combustible that just ignited in that year. But there was a need for the sort of leadership that you're writing about in your book, and we have not seen that since then. Right. So
0: so I think the the, the notion that um, we adapt to immaturity. This is a Friedman sort of key insight in his book, and that I think is a real thing. And I, some of what I'm doing in my book is trying to simply distill. So I'm it's much shorter than his. And uh, his was written in sort of psychological therapeutic categories with a lot of evolutionary gobbledygook woven in there for good measure. And I was going, "Hey, the Bible talks about these exact same things. It has just different vocabulary." So what? So Friedman helped identify. Oh, that's that's what that is. And then it's does the Bible give us? similar categories to think about, um, think about these things and the virtues that we use to cultivate, uh, to combat them. And so, um, so that adaptation to immaturity, uh, the Bible calls people-pleasing, you know, like, like <laughs> the, the may, fear, fear of man and people-pleasing, um, are two sort of fundamental things that the new Testament is full of o- old Testament too, right? Don't fear what, what man fears. Um, but, but we often don't recognize how they function. Uh, because we think it's just we fear something out there as opposed to the actual thing that we often fear is the thing in here. And so it's there that our actual, uh, reluctance to confront or our reluct- or our, our willingness to bend perhaps, um, comes into play. And that's true, like, mo- at, a, at a very tangible level, like at your home. So, you, so almost everybody has experience in their home culture, no matter how good it was, of situations where, um, the entire home began to revolve around somebody who was the most reactive and immature member of the of the community and and by revolve around it was simply nobody everybody walks on eggshells in hopes that they won't blow up yeah and so there's a kind of adapting um to kind of make make space for that person and that that kind of and when i say blow i said blow up um uh in order to avoid the reaction because because the reality is is the reactions could take various forms you could have you could be catering or coddling or adapting to someone who blows up gets really angry and intense and emotional or it could be you could be adapting to someone who shuts down goes passive aggressive walks out of the room um but in either case it's there's this an intention emotional reaction that everybody sort of without even um formally speaking it begins to operate around and when that's happening um the entire, the whatever the body is it's a family um it can't function properly. It can't do what it's meant to do because everybody's too busy trying to accommodate this, uh, the, the reactive immature. And so the biblical term for this is passions. So when, when we talk about reactivity, um, when we talk about chronic anxiety, the Bible term for that, I think is passions, um, which it treats as sort of, um, something that could be good, uh, that by God's design, we have these emotions, we call them emotions now. Um, but these sort of instinctive emotions or intuitive, uh, impulsive emotions. So your anger, um, fear, um, desire, pity, uh, these are all, uh, sadness. These are all good examples of passions. And they're just sort of like that knee jerk automatic response you have to something. Well, when that, um, when that's just kind of the, the systems, uh, when that's your body's, um, plasma, when that's just what everybody, that, that's the fumes in the room, then everybody's really concerned. We don't want those to go off. We don't want somebody to blow up and somebody to shut down. And so we we begin to cater, we begin to um, adapt, um, and we don't realize really realize that we're doing it um, because we think and, and we're we're prone to like blame somebody. So oftentimes in a situation like that, it's actually um, because everybody's agreed without ever saying it that we're not going to cause that person to blow up. Then when somebody decides, you know what, they're just treating me. They're, they're not treating me very nice. And they put their foot down. They, they have some nerve and they say, that's unacceptable. You can't talk to me that way. And they do it very calmly. And then the person blows up. Everybody blames the guy who provoked. Everybody blames the guy who put his yeah. foot down. Right. And they try to, and, and all of the pressure is going to be like, Hey, you know how he is, you know how she is. Um, and all of the pressure is going to be on you to be the reasonable one. And there's going to be all sorts of excuses made for, um, for the person who's actually steering things. Well, you know, they were just tired. Um, you know, you know, how hard things have been at work, you know, um, what their, what their home life was like, all of, all sorts of, um, explanations are brought to bear for that person and you're expected to, to, um, adapt to it. And this, and this then kneecaps leaders. This is what it does is it makes, um, it makes leaders unable to lead because the moment they try to say, Hey, we're going this way. And then the reaction happens, they're going to get derailed, not just by the person who blows up, but by all of the reasonable people, reasonable people in the room who are going to put the pressure on to like, Hey, can't you be more sensitive? Can't you be more um, sympathetic, (laughs) empathetic? Why, why, why do you have to provoke everybody all the time? Um, Couldn't, can't you just um, be loving?
1: Yeah. The, uh, the language used in your book is like a social stampede. Yeah. Um, And I'm, I'm assuming that's the same as what Friedman called hurting, like this hurting mentality where, um, because you have, the leaders wanting to stand apart from, you know, be his own man or be her own woman, as the case may be. But stand apart, have this, have a, a calm presence that is not caught up in the hysteria of the moment. And whenever they don't do that, this is one of the things that that is really fascinating. Whenever you have a leader that does, that is mature, they're sober-minded, as you describe in your book, there is a because they don't get involved in the social stampede where everybody starts to accommodate and to make peace, and Friedman calls them peacemongers, then, then the reaction that you get, that, that the leader is seen to be the problem, as you said. So it could be that good leadership is the one that is surrounded by people that are freaking out and they are, the fact that everybody's freaking out is then used as a bludgeon to accuse the leader of poor leadership. They said, right. you're, you're being wrong. You're not accommodating us because they define leadership as accommodating everyone because that's what everybody else does. And a leader who stands on their own, has their own mind, <laughs> and doesn't go along with the crowd, they're accused of bad leadership when actually they're being good leaders. That, right. That's fascinating.
0: Yeah, so, you know, w- when we think about le- when we the modern notion of leadership is really this, um, especially when it gets brought up with like s- sort of the idea of servant leadership, which sounds great. How could, isn't that what Jesus is? Well, um, not the way that modern people do it. Like G- Jesus knows where he wants to take us. He has a destination yeah. in mind. He's, he knows what the body is for. He knows what God's purposes are for uh, his people. And he's going to take us there um, in reliance on his leadership. And, and the modern notion is almost the inverse of that, where it's figure out what the people want and help to make that happen. Um, and so the, the divinely ordained, divinely given purpose of the, of the body isn't really taken into account. And because it's not, because it's simply a, you have a leader and, and sort of the, the followers, it's all here. It doesn't have anything to do with direction and, and purpose. Um, then the leader simply for trying to take us somewhere is is to blame when some people don't want to go along and they they throw a big fit about it. Uh, and so a good leader is the one who's going to say, you know what, I've got clarity about what I'm here for and where I want to take this institution, where I want to take this family, where I want to take this church. And when he takes those steps, he should expect sabotage. He should expect that some people are going to go, we don't want to go that way. And in the modern world, we'll leverage that as evidence of your being a bad leader because you're not listening well. Um, which like, is it possible that you might not be listening? Well, sure, but that's something that has to be demonstrated. And the, and the fact that someone simply claims it isn't actually evidence, um, and maybe, no, I'm, I'm hearing you, I'm disagreeing and saying we're going this way anyway. Um, so I heard it and I'm not doing it. It's, it's the unwillingness to adapt that is the sort of cardinal sin. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and because I think people don't really recognize. It, it takes a long time for people to recognize that that's actually what's happening. It is the more reasonable, often so- very soft-hearted and good-intentioned people who will put the most pressure on on a, a strong, sober-minded, clear leader. They'll that that's where that you know one of the key things that I'm, I try to get across in the book is that the the most intense pressure really doesn't come from people out there. It's actually the people closest to you that are the most um the most difficult thing for a leader to overcome precisely because they're not the one who's lighting their hair on fire they're not they're not being reactive in a very obvious way Mm -hmm. they're being very reasonable and so resisting them when they're when they're actually so they may be being steered by the reactive people by the immature people but they themselves aren't manifestly you know making a big stink but they are bringing the pressure. They are channeling that pressure. And that's that's the more difficult thing for a sober-minded leader to, to overcome and to go, well, wait, is it good? Is it wise if we do this? I can see how it might placate their feelings, but is it actually good for them? Is it good for the body um, for us to adapt in this way? Yeah,
1: it, I can just imagine how these things play out in churches. I know I've experienced it myself and I've talked to so many people pastors and church leaders, ministry leaders that are in the same boat, because we're they experience these dynamics because we're relational beings, and Mm -hmm. emotions are powerful. And one of the things you said in, in the book was like, the greatest pressure comes from those closest to you. You mentioned that a moment ago, too. And I think that pastors, especially in churches, they can find themselves being emotionally sabotaged by their churches, and it hits right in the middle of his life. Because of the church is a family, and right. the bigger the family, you know, depending on the circumstances, there could be a whole lot of dysfunction in a church mm-hmm. family, and that's that's a good thing. I mean, it's good in, in the sense that there is a a place for people to find a home and belonging in the fellowship of Christians. But they bring that dysfunction with them, and they bring their expectations, unhealthy or not, to that church family, and then there there could be, you know, wives talking and how how yeah. different. Different little conversations flow here and there, and people might try to backdoor influence to the pastor by getting in his wife's ear, and and then she'll go to her husband and be like, "You know, I've been hearing from some of my friends, and I've got this problem." And that, well, I read you wrote in American Reformer uh, a week or two ago Mm -hmm. that that one paragraph. um, I've got to hear. It's like I I just got to read this paragraph. I'd love to hear you riff on this. Because you said, in a local church, the problem can manifest when there's a repeated pattern of all-male elder meetings in which a difficult decision is made that draws clear lines. And then, after the elders have gone home and talked to their wives, the email and texts start flying. Brothers, I've been praying about it, and I think we need to reconsider our decision. And I, like I read that, I was yeah. like, I have experienced that very <laughs> thing so many times. Right.
0: Yes. Right, and so I think... People, so, so certainly people hear that and go, what, you're saying that wives shouldn't have any influence. Uh, you know, you don't want women to have any influence. It's like, no, I just want them to have godly influence. So the issue isn't um, that, that a pastor's wife might not see, might see something, and therefore she could pass it along to her husband who can factor it into to, leaving the church, right? I've had that happen plenty of times where my wife has been alert to things, and even her friends have been alert to things. So she's been a sort of a channel of information. So the the influence thing is a good thing. One of the things I I you know do in the book is to say the head and body relationship, um, whether in marriage or in the church, is one in which the head is taking initiative and and leading with presence and words and deeds, setting the agenda, setting the tempo. But there is a feedback mechanism that God intends for us to use. The body is a source of wisdom and insight by His design, and so a godly wife is a good counselor for her husband. You know, just and. And so it's not, it's not that that's bad itself, but it's also the case that it can easily go wrong, especially in this kind of angsty environment, um, because it channels. because it is a, it is a amplifier, it's an amplifier of the angst. And so, um, when it, in that, in that scenario, it's not, um, you know, it was, I carefully chose the words because it wasn't, um, the, the actual thing that's happening, which is why, a wife who got angsty about a clear decision that was going to cause some emotional turmoil, which women often are very sensitive to, um, it's, that's getting channeled to her husband, and that it, but it's being uh, sublimated or, or it's being sort of driven underground in the name of, I've been praying about it, right? And right. so it's the, it's, it's the way that it's not open. This is not an open discussion of, hey, you know, my wife made a good point whenever I told her about it. She said that this, this could be the result. Do we want to factor that in? that would be open conversation and it would be about whether or not this is a wise or good decision. Okay. What we're talking about is there was emotional angst channeled and now we're bringing pressure to reconsider, Mm -hmm. um, and, and sort of covering it over with God. And it was, it's a repeated pattern. It's it's sort of, this is the way that things go is the sidebar. And that that could be true with the, with the wives. It's also true though, of, of, um, um, you know, if you have a larger elder council, um, people are familiar with this phenomenon where in the in the actual decision-making room when you're actually having the discussion um nobody says anything nobody objects nobody makes a case but then there's frequently an elder or two usually who are quieter and won't speak up in the big meeting because they'd have to defend it in front of everyone but who in the hallway after are going to get somebody's ear and now we're going to have to reconsider like again so it's it's the same dynamic it's not the 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 gender thing is a real element and can aggravate it but it's something that's just true and the common thread is this is um it's subtle and it's driven by emotional pressure more than it's driven by what is true what is good what is wise that sort of discussion everybody should have patience for all day long that's what leaders do is debate what's true what's good and what's wise for us to do but when it's not about those questions but about consequences right is this gonna offend is this gonna is this gonna be is this gonna cause a blow up is that that family gonna leave um you know when it's when it's all results oriented um and that that's the reason not to do it so it's hey yeah you could say that true thing you could do that faithful thing but if you do there's going to be consequences and that's a reason not to do the faithful thing Mm -hmm. then we're dealing in a different way and it's and it's often very it's very um hidden and often leaders don't don't actually get why they keep getting sabotaged why they get derailed, why the mission of the of the church is constantly getting like hey i want to go here i think that god wants to take us and we all agree in our best moments that's where we're going but then it's just like and you just get taken off taken off why does that keep happening well because you're leading well this is what you should expect and you should lead through it you should you should cultivate the kind of sober-minded stamina to consider it and then to ignore it if it's not good and wise
1: yeah my great-grandparents got married when they were young and they stayed true to their wedding vows for 74 years they lived long enough to meet some of my children which was their great great grandchildren unfortunately healthy christian households like this have become an endangered species and christian understanding of sexuality is often more catechized by the world than informed by a biblical worldview And so as a result, we have increasing numbers of Christians who lack a proper understanding of masculinity, femininity, and the beauty of God's good design. And so Christians who want to obey God's design for sexuality still need guidance from faithful leaders. To address this need, King's Domain Ministries in Cincinnati, Ohio, has invited an incredible lineup of speakers to our annual conference. This year, the theme is called Gendered Virtue, Men and Women Who Take Dominion. The lineup of speakers includes Michael Foster, Joe Rigney, Toby Sumter, Shane Morris, and others. And our desire is to help men and women know why God created the sexes the way he did, how we can live virtuously and harmoniously with each other, and how all of this is for God's glory and our good. I'm confident that everybody who attends this conference will leave with three things other than the sweet t-shirt and the other swag that we'll give you. Number one, a biblical blueprint for establishing Christian households that last for generations. Number two, practical application for men and women from experienced ministers of the gospel. And number three, tangible steps that you can take to move forward in your specific situation. This conference is intended for men and women, single or married, or whether or not you have children you will certainly benefit from the teaching and fellowship that you will experience at this conference. I would love to have you here, and I'd love to meet you personally. We've done everything we can to keep the cost low, so it's only $129 per person. If you want to find out more information and register, just go to genderedvirtue.com. I look forward to seeing you there. I've I've noticed in my experience that the emotional accommodation to the herd mentality is taken as the way that you love your neighbor, right. and so if people are hurt, then their 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 pain is an indictment on your action, and it is given right. legitimacy immediately by the fact that they feel strong emotions about it, and so if that is extrapolated over you know a, a significant number of people, then it's like hey. This thing that you did was the dreaded hurtful action, <laughs> and because people are hurt, then it must have been wrong, and you were insensitive, and you shouldn't have done that. You might even be abusive and a yeah. narcissist, you know, and all right. the accusations accumulate. When, when really, it's what isn't acknowledged is that we're we're just letting people's emotions drive how we think, and right. we're not principled. Of course, you. It, I, I think it is good and wise to at least. Have an awareness. Okay, this this decision is going to be painful. We want to prepare for the fallout of this difficult decision, but often that's like, well, we don't make that difficult decision because the fact that people will be hurt in the process is unChristlike. Jesus would right. never dare offend anyone or hurt anybody's feelings, so we couldn't do that. And yes. this this messed up idea of being gentle, lowly, Christlike, or whatever is driving us at a reflexive intuitive emotional level and it's not not rooted in any real scriptural principle
0: right and and because we live in a society and a cultural context in which um victimhood confers invulnerability um there is a competitive victimhood reality and and I think when people, when you point that out, people get really upset. You're saying, well, should, should we not care for victims? And I'm saying, no, if you want to care for real victims, don't incentivize um, victimhood, right? Don't, don't make yep. it the sort of thing where uh, you don't, the thing that will keep real victims from being actual cared for, cared for well is if everybody is trying their best to be put in the victim bucket, because if you get there, you get the steering wheel everybody <laughs> will have to do what you say, right? Because the people that will actually end up getting the steering wheel and getting their way are not the, are not actual people who have been damaged and want to be faithful, right? Who, who have been abused and just want to be healed. It'll be opportunists and it will be a, a victim ad, a, ad advocates who are opportunists who will immediately try to jump on and steer that ship. And so you don't want to incentivize that. Um, instead, you want to, you want to consider like what what's tr- you start with the questions of truth and falsehood with um, good and evil faithfulness unfaithfulness wise and foolish those are the categories and then having done that having started there then you're you, then you can afford um, to be compassionate because your your compassion at that point will be tethered to reality it'll be tethered to the scriptures it'll be tethered to Christ and so now you're able to actually to be actually compassionate because you haven't lost yourself, in the emotions of, uh, in, in, the, in the back to the beginning, that chronic anxiety. Mm-hmm. You're not just getting led by the passions, your own or other people's. Um, you're you're steady, you're stable, you have some ballast, um, and you'll be able to to lead well through it.
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm curious how you would um, ac- apply these ideas or explain them and how they play out differently in men and women. Um, yeah. Uh, I've heard you say something recently that summarized a problem I've seen many times in ministry, um, and that is, th- there, was a, there was a line that you said on Josh Dahl's podcast, right. and I, I want to build up to it here, but, but pastors will be direct and bold when confronting a man's sin. I'm like, hey, man up, get your act together, because men can talk to each other in a very direct and confrontational way, and that's that's normal discourse for men. But because we don't if, if you have a godly, virtuous man, he does not want to speak to a woman as though she's a man. There's going to be a right. gentleness, a kindness, a, an extra degree of tenderness that he'll, he'll use in his communication with her because he is a godly man that wants to honor her femininity as a woman. And then women are, I think, consequently, or in, at least in a related way, they're presumed to be more virtuous than men. And so godly, virtuous men will threaten wickedness in other men with a zeal and courage and directness, and that leaves room for she-wolves to enter the church and tear the church apart, appearing harmless and sweet because they do it with such a gentle demeanor. And then, if you have a godly man that tries to correct her, this harmful woman, then he is piled on and attacked by white knighting uh, men who are weak, but they think that they are doing God's work by attacking the man who is actually trying to correct the problem. And so the way that you said it on Josh Dawes' podcast, I thought was so helpful and concise, and I'm maybe not getting the quote exact, exactly right, but you said something to the effect of good men don't want to fight bad women. Right. And I'm like, that's it. That is the problem. Good men don't want to fight bad women. Can you explain that more and what maybe get yeah. some counsel on how to correct that?
0: Yeah, so it really is, uh, in all of these things, what you're looking at is um, a, a corruption or perversion um, of a good principle. So this is sort of like the baseline, you know, Augustinian point that says all bad things are just corruptions of good things. And we have to be alert for them. And then, then so that's the Augustinian point. All bad things are corruption of good things. And then the C.S. Lewis sort of riff on that is the greater the good thing, the worse it, the worse it is when it becomes a bad thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So um Lewis Lewis in Four Loves talks a lot about how um the, the the real dangers are when natural loves um the high the better the natural love, the greater the natural love. Maternal maternal love can become absolutely demonic and evil when it when it loses touch. It can become possessive. Uh, he talks about maternal vampires, right? So you take mm-hmm. that sort of maternal instinct to care and and care for someone and um and it goes off the rails. So this is that's what's happening in all of these these illustrations. Is here's something that's good. So what's the good? Well, the good is um, men shouldn't hit girls. You don't boys don't hit girls. You're told from a young age you don't wrestle with the girls the way you wrestle with the boys. Um, you treat them with gentleness and with respect. And an additional level of that because they're they're women that you show honor uh, as the weaker vessel. So that that Peter says that in the context of marriage, but it's because it's a that's an application of the general truth that women as the weaker vessel ought to be treated with a special honor. So that's the good thing. And so when, I, when a man feels like I need to pull my punch a little bit, I need to be mindful of my tone of voice a little bit, I need to, all of those things that he, um, if he's been um, raised well, if he's, if he's been taught well, he will sort of intuitively do, um, all of that's to the good. But it also then opens up a particular weakness is that if you want to sort of, if the devil wants to smuggle in Um, all kinds of falsehood in a context that has really owned that principle, then using women as the, as the vehicle will be the path of least resistance because a guy will say, Hey, no, that's just wrong. I'm not, that's, that's just false to a guy in a direct way. But if he does that to her, she, and and this is especially true if she knows her business, like if she, if she knows how this works and she probably does intuitively, and you get sort of the progressive girl flop where. Um, here they put forward something. And then, and then when the correction comes, it's like, watch, it's like, this is why I can't stand watching soccer and bas- basketball to a lesser degree. But soccer is the worst because of the, everybody knows, like all of the YouTube videos of the flops where he didn't get hit, but he acted like he's dying in order to get the yellow card, um, or the red card. And, and it's that sort of thing happens all the time. And she, and in, in a lot of in Christian spaces, you can count on men attempting to live up to a chivalric ideal and therefore doing the white knight thing where here's the damsel in distress. And so he's actually engaged in something that feels to him noble, right? She's being attacked, um, which means she's being in this, you know, she's being corrected by a man. And therefore I have to go fight on her behalf. I have to be her champion. And nobody, I don't think in a lot of these things, people consciously are like, I'm going to go be the white knight right now. But I right. think it's just, it's ingrained habits. And this is why that language of sabotage is so, um, is it's like, it doesn't have to be malicious sabotage in the sense of there's a plot somewhere. Now I do actually, like, I honestly know that there are um, plots like that, like that people literally are conspiring together. How do we take that person down? that does actually happen. But a lot of times this is just reactive and instinctive and intuitional. And so, but it can be disorienting when you're like, I was just trying to correct the error. And instead I'm, I'm getting, um, I've got this person over here who's going, how dare you? And then these other guys going, yeah, man, what's up with that? And who are acting very white knightish. And, and so what, what godly leaders end up trying to do is figure out how do I avoid that conflict? How right. do I not... How do I, how do I stay out of it? And now we're back to that first thing we talked about, which is accommodating the most immature and reactive and the immature and reactive here are both say the women who are, you know, channeling false teaching or, or themselves teaching false teaching or the white knight men who are just reacting to damsel in distress. And now we're accommodating. So just hope that it doesn't come to your church. Just hope that you can sort of steer clear of it, avoid, avoidance, 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 which effectively ends up meaning abdication and this is i think in terms of you know the the book that's coming out which doesn't get as much into uh some of the the gender dynamics of it they're sort of like i latent in there i guess you can you can see it uh once you know what to look for um Mm -hmm. but but i'm i'm trying to get at just in general um when when this thing is is uh is operating um the temptation to abdicate will be strong and this is sort of the cardinal This is the first sin of masculinity. This is Adam in the garden letting the devil tempt his wife while he's standing there. It's Aaron at the golden calf being overwhelmed by the distress of the people and they're saying, give me your gold. It's Saul with the, you know, after the Amalekites when the people are apparently, I mean, we want to keep the best of the flocks and sacrifice them to the Lord and you should keep alive the king. And he listens, he fears the people. That's that fun. That's the fundamental. That's the first temptation. But where that temptation always leads, if you succumb there, if you fail to take responsibility at that first stage, then it eventually leads to the high-handed rebellion. Eventually you're going to be doing the great evil because you're going to choose this person's feelings over God. And then you're going to blame them for it. Whenever, whenever everything finally comes clear and you're going to, and now everybody sees the, the devastation and they go, they look at you and say, how'd this happen? You're going to go, well, the, the woman you gave me. Right. Yeah. You know, the people, how their hearts are always set on evil. You know how hard it is to be a pastor. Um, I feared the people and listened to their voice. That's, that's, that's what, um, Adamic masculinity does. It, it abdicates, it commits, it commits rebellion, and then it blames the body that led it that way. And this is, this is what the problem. This is fundamentally in homes and churches in the world. That pattern is the thing that we have to break. Yeah. Well, the, the
1: faithful pastor, faithful leader will often be the one who is choosing to say the thing that triggers the emotional dominoes to fall. Right. And I do think that I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it it, it at the very least it how the dominoes fall or what might be the trigger points will be different for men and women. Um but women are more emotional on the whole in the aggregate. Mm-hmm. And so there's a it, there's a a desire to cater to um, the sensibilities of women, and that leaves them under-discipled. Because right. this things that are more prone, like temptations or sin patterns that are more prone to women, you know are going to be more volatile issues to address. Um, and it's a lot easier to just hammer on the men and do it in such a way that the women feel like, hey, I'm, I'm protecting you from this bad man in your life, bad husband, bad boss, or whatever, the toxic men... When really there are issues in her life, in the lives of women in general, that it's like I'm I'm not going to venture there because if I do, you might get upset, and you may call me the dreaded names. And you you actually said this in one point of the book. It's like be prepared to be called names. You might be, you need to be prepared. It's like they may, if you're a faithful pastor, they might call you a sexist or a misogynist or some other dreaded label that that causes people to just you know panic and and run for the hills. And and I think that what that does is that leaves a, a maturity gap or at least a discipleship gap where women's women's particular temptations are not seen or addressed because we're afraid of the reaction we might get. Right. Would you say that's true or Yeah, you know? and I
0: well, I think it's certainly true in in key places. And the way that you and and this is the the thing that you you've got to test your own context to see whether this is true. So my my uh My running test on this sort of thing is you got your, oh, um, your reactions and hesitations are a great test case. So the, the hypothetical is, um, you, uh, you're preaching on marriage and you're, you've got multiple pastors uh, in your church who sometimes preach. And so you're all, you're divvying up the preaching assignment. And one week the sermon is going to be husbands love your wife like Christ loved the church. And, and something that's going to be from Ephesians 5. And then the next week is going to be from 1 Peter 3. And the message is going to be, um, wives submit like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham, calling him war. And now, and, and you and your fellow pastors are trying to sort out who gets to preach which one. Hot potato. You, you, right. you take and, this one. Yeah. And so at that point, if you feel something rise up in your throat that says, I know which one I don't want. I know which sermon I don't want to preach. Then that's a sign that like, okay, you're, 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 you know, something, what, and then you need to interrogate that. What do you know? Is it because, and there's a way in which it, it could be, uh, simply the good form of what we're talking about. Like, oh, it, it will take more effort on my part to show honor to the women of my congregation as the weaker vessels in order to explain that. And that would be a good thing. But as a pastor, you ought to lean into that. Like who better to do that? Who better to model how to carefully, patiently, um, and forthrightly um address the this duty that God gives to wives. Is don't you want isn't that what isn't that way you got into ministry? But aren't you needed there? So if you go, oh, I know which one will be tougher and you go, and that's the one I need to do. Great. Congratulations. That's that's exactly right. But if you go, oh, I know which one I don't want, because you know that when you preach the husbands love your wife sermon, you're gonna be preaching, you'll preach it straight down the middle and you'll unload and you'll be able to speak directly and, and not even in the mean way, not even in like the angry, like you guys all suck kind of way. Like that, that How I think more you? and more folks, yeah, more, more and more guys realize that that ain't exactly the best way that men actually do need some encouragement and not just a, a hammer on top of their heads. But like guys, you're, I know it's hard, but do it. Um, but you'll be able to preach it directly. And that you realize if I do the other one, I'm going to have to, it's going to be acres of footnotes in that sermon. There are going to be qualifications up and down the line of, well, now I know when I say this, I don't mean this and this and this and this and this. And then you just qualify the whole thing to that. Why are you doing that? And it's because intuitively, you know, that if you don't, you're going to, you're going to get emails or you at least think you do. And this is, I think, one of the things that a number of pastors underestimate is that if they actually would just go for it, if they would just say, hey wives i know it's scary to obey a fallible man it was scary for um sarah to do it that's why she's commended as an example of courage in the bible she didn't fear anything that was frightening because she hoped in god and so i want to say to all you ladies in here i know that your husband's fallible and it's scary to follow him but god says obey your husband treat him orient to him as as lord as someone worthy of honor and respect you're the lady he's the lord orient him that way hope in god and do that and if you just preach that straight down the middle, I think a lot of pastors would be surprised by the number of emails they would get from godly women in their church going, "Thank you, yes, thank." You. Because oftentimes those godly women are are seeing the same thing you are in mm-hmm. other in the in in the uh, loud women, in the ones who are resenting their who resent their husbands and tear down their house and are noisy and dripping faucets. They see it all, and they're like, "I wish I they what they what do they want? At some level, they want some backup." Yes. Like they, they need, they want to hear their shepherd go, Hey, that kind of conduct in this flock is unacceptable because this is God's flock. And they would actually welcome it, receive it. And you would be like, Oh, oh, wow. You mean if I actually do what God says, if I actually preach what the Bible says, God blesses it? Um, And, and, and you still may get the, well, you know, you didn't, you didn't acknowledge this difficult situation in your sermon. You didn't, you know, and, and they knew, and they, they get on you for that or it was, you said it in a kind of mean way. Um, you may still get some of that, but that's just part of it. That's like, yeah. welcome to, welcome to earth. This is, this is ministry. Um, don't, don't abdicate. What you can't do is try to outsource your responsibility for half of your flock to who? Or Women's ministries. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, like that's, and that's honestly what a lot of guys want to do is they, like I did in the article the other day, like the call Rosario option. Like they want to just say, I don't know how to address this female teacher but but the actual the actual danger here is is not first from like the more overt overt stuff but it's it's outsourcing theological discipleship of women to um women period so it's and and it's it's the it's the what i would call the mission creep of titus 2. um so titus 2 right older women should teach the younger women and that and it is an interesting thing that in that passage that where paul is sort of setting out how discipleship in this in the church should work to Titus. He says, Titus, you tell the older men this, you tell the younger men that, and you tell the older women to tell the younger women this. And so he does mediate some of the instruction through older women. He says, you know, mothers in the church, actually, they, this actually might come better from them, Titus, than it will from you. So that's not always wrong. The issue is the kind of instruction that the older women should give to the younger women is largely about how do they orient it's, it's domestic stuff. It's, how, it's, it's basic obedience stuff. It's how do you manage your home well? Um, the stuff that older women would know how to do better than you would, Titus, because you've never done it. And yeah. so that's the thing. What he doesn't outsource to the older women is, um, is, is doctrine. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not outsource all Bible teaching to women, to the older women in the church, um, and let them basically be functional pastors for half of your people. Who they're the ones who are going to teach systematic theology. They're the ones who are going to teach all the Bible studies. It, it's, it's, a, and so you totally outsource it there. And then you're surprised when about four or five years later, there's something funny happening in your church. You go, what, where is this coming from? And it's like, it came through your women's ministry. You left that gate open and women are ill suited for the doctrinal guardianship task in general. It's a, it's an unusual woman who really does have that kind of doctrinal bent and fortitude to be able to say no uh and so that's that's an unusual thing and so you let it in you because you you abdicated you outsourced because Mm -hmm. it was easier to let the woman say it or because you listened to the voices this is even among like i think conservative evangelicals that basically said hey women can learn the bible too and you go well that's true amen well that women can also teach the bible too and you go yeah i mean like you know uh Uh, Priscilla and Aquila kind of stuff like that, that happened. And, and so, um, and they teach in Titus two. And then the conclusion was therefore the main discipleship of our women is outsourced to women. And it's like, no, that's not it. Like you're the shepherd for the whole flock. You're the shepherd for all the people, not just the men. Yeah. Yeah. I
1: I, I think pastors are tempted to, to use the, the role of Titus two women in their church, like shock absorbers or buffer zones, yeah, exactly. that creates this distance between the shepherd and his female flock. And right. so what you have, I think it contributes to the under-discipleship of women, where men... It's like, I, I go to the men's times uh, in our church. Yeah. Me and all the other elders, we're there, we're hanging out with guys, we're having conversations. So it's like, men are getting very much direct discipleship and input from the pastors in the church. And then there's this gender segregation, where the women are doing the same thing, Um, but there are no pastors there because we don't have women pastors because the Bible tells us not to, and so Mm -hmm. you have people that are not called nor qualified to be pastors because they're women providing that same type of discipleship, proximity and instruction, formal or informal, and we do that because we bought into the lie that, well, the way that you honor women is make them leaders. You honor right. women by giving them titles and putting them in charge of things that the Bible says not to do, and rather than seeing the way Bi- the Bible teaches it, which is that actually dishonors women, because that dishonors the thing God made her for, right. uh, and the way that she is meant to relate and learn, it um, it, it it inverts God's design, yeah. and that it puts women in danger. So they're, mm. they're under-discipled in one sense, and... In another sense, you have women that are being put in harm's way that shouldn't be there, thinking that I'm doing what my pastor told me to do. So I'm following the lead of my pastors, if they weren't the ones clamoring for it, but they were just responding mm-hmm. to the pastor telling them, "Hey, this is what churches are supposed to do. We need to have women teach systematic theology, and then some other woman will teach hermeneutics to the women." And they're 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 subjecting them to shepherding type of ministry that isn't really appropriate. And so right. the women get their, the vast majority of their spiritual input from their church is on Sunday morning, and in that 40-minute, 40 45-minute sermon, that's most of what she's going to get. And right. that's, I'll give you one example yeah. of this. Um, in our church, we, uh, we we started a women's Bible study, and um, so I'm teaching it. My wife and I are, you know, she, we're facilitating mm-hmm. it together, but I'm the one that is teaching it, which my wife is pretty shy. She doesn't want to teach, so basically it's like right. she uh, she just comes with me and, you know, is, is helpful yeah. with hospitality and so on. But um, I, you, you do get some strange reactions when it's like, yeah, I'm going to lead a women's Bible study, and people are like, hmm, mm-hmm. that's unusual. Uh, mm-hmm. What a novel idea. Why, why are you doing it that way? And it it is... It, I haven't heard this directly, but I... Suspect that there's at least a temptation to feel as though why does he not trust us? Um, right. it's like exactly. he's got to be in the room and he's got to keep an eye on us, he doesn't trust us. And I'm like, No, it's like I'm here because I love you and I want to, yeah, I, I, I want to impart to you what, what the scriptures say the same way I would with men, but do it in an environment that is uh, just for women so we can address things in a unique way. Um, yeah. but that. My heart breaks for women in churches because I don't think they're getting pastoral care that God right.
0: would want them to have. Right. Yes, I think, and I think that's right. The, the, and the and the what well, you mentioned there about, hey, don't you trust us? Is or um, or you don't value us or whatever that becomes becomes sort of that underlying angst that's just floating in the system, waiting for an opportunity to erupt. Because um, because that because basically it festers. And if it's not gladly embraced as this is actually our pastors trying to care for us, if it's not, if it's not regarded that way, but it's framed as a sort of, um, de- demeaning, uh, of women or, or something like that, but it festers. And eventually, eventually it's going to erupt and everybody will go up. How did this happen? Well, you, you didn't address it. So it's, it's, it is a, it is a perennial, uh, sort of issue. And it's, and in our modern cult context, it is where, um, a lot of the, a lot of the fight is Doesn't matter what denomination you're in. There's a, for, there's a form of this on the table, um, that has to be, um, addressed. And then pre what the prerequisite for all of these things is a kind of steady sober mindedness. So that, that virtue of sober mindedness as a qualification is, mm. um, it's different. Like it's not just be stubborn and be, it, there's, there's a mo- so many different ways to go wrong, but it's like the only way to go right is to start with, I am not drunk on my passions or other people's passions, right? I'm sober and therefore can, I can't hear um, um, feedback, negative feedback, critical feedback, and not, and not get real defensive and feel like I've got to like, I can be curious. I can ask questions and say, okay, so you feel that way. Help me understand a little bit better where you're coming from because it's not cooking yet. You think because I said this in the sermon, that therefore I don't, what again? You know, like you you can act mm-hmm. because you're under control, because God right. is your anchor, the criticism isn't debilitating and it's not something that you have to worry about. You don't have to panic about your reputation because you're trusting in God. You want to pre-please Him, and therefore you're actually able to listen well. Um, you're actually able to like um, do it because you're not um this is the tethered piece, right? You're not tethered to their emotional response to you. You're not yeah. That their disapproval or unhappiness isn't debilitating. Why? Because you believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. You believe that God approves you in Christ and that's your, funda- that's your first qualification. So now it's just, man, who's sufficient for these things? God's making me sufficient and I can lead through this. Yeah. yeah. It, as, you're, as you're talking about that, I, I can imagine the
1: way that we, a lot of people read leadership books or think about leadership. They think here is the fix, the solution, Right. Um, so if I'm in a rough leadership environment, I want to read Dr. Rigney's book, and, and then things will get, get much better, because I want to be a sober-minded leader, and then everything will be calm. And I, I think what I would just <laughs> want to point out is just like, <laughs> if you are the kind of leader that is sober-minded and leads the way that God would have you lead, there is a good chance it'll get worse, and right. the fact that it gets worse means you're over the target. And because you're over the target, that's where the real work of shepherding and discipleship can begin, because you're able to use their reactivity as an entry point into whatever problem it is that they're dealing with, that they need to address with the tools of Scripture, and you can be the shepherd that leads them there. Yes. But it's so tempting to panic along with them and do what the world does, which is... Right. I'm so sorry. I was wrong. Please forgive me. Um, do I need to make a public statement? Let me apologize in front of these people here. Let me donate money to your organization and just and freak out, to all, all to keep the pressure off. But even that doesn't work. That's right. only a temporary reprieve, but you've now incentivized
0: exactly. the sorts
1: of behavior that will make it worse the next time. And then well, last time, this is what we had to do, and, and he caved, and so we'll do it again. Yep. So at some point, you've got to have the marbles to say, I'm not going to yep. do this, but to be sober-minded about it, not stubborn-minded <laughs> about it. Right.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that's the, the, the key thing, again, about sober-mindedness there is it allows for course correction, right? You yeah. can actually, like, so you ought, you ought to be the most, so I, earlier I was kind of taking a shot at the reasonable people because they're often the ones who are trying to negotiate apologies. You said something, somebody got hurt and therefore you get in a room and now the expectation is, is that both of you are going to leave having apologized for something. And if you, and if, and if, and, and, and so, um, okay. They're willing to admit that, yeah, they shouldn't have screamed in the, in the congregational meeting. That was, that was a little too much. They were just, they just cared that much. And so that's why they screamed. Now, can you also admit that you shouldn't have said what you said or that you were harsh? And if you go, but I wasn't harsh. (laughs) So no, I'm not going to apologize. Well, why aren't you being a Christian? You, are you saying you're sinless? Like, no, I'm not saying I'm sinless, but I am saying I have, yeah, I walked in integrity. And so reasonable people in that sense, try to negotiate the apologies. But there is a way in which you ought to be the most reasonable person in the room. If someone comes to you with an open Bible, then you're like, I got an open mind. If someone comes to you with new information, well, I can soberly consider it and factor it in and realize, you know what? I made a decision based on partial information. It was mistaken. I now know more of this situation and we need to course correct. And that's, and you go, and that's not like a, oh, how are we going to manage the fallout or what what's going to happen? It's like, this is just leadership. Don't. Don't panic about having to not you weren't God. You didn't know everything. And so you made uh, you know, a decision based on partial information. Mm-hmm. earth, Like that's fine. Lead through it. What the, what people are hungry for is that kind of steadiness. It's what your wife wants. It's what your kids want. Is what your church wants? It's what your school wants. It's what the nation wants, for goodness sake. because like yeah. is can we can we just have some steadiness? Somebody who goes, I don't I'm not omnicompetent. I don't know everything. There are questions i don't have the answer to about how the future is going to go but i know god i'm planted on the rock and i can press on i can lead through this um because he's going to lead and guide and i know i know his word and so that that's what that's what the 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 desire is the need is is that kind of clarity that kind of steadiness that kind of readiness to act um that's not going to pass the buck but is going to actually take responsibility and it is attracted. And the thing it will do is if you're, in a, if you're in an institution or an organization where it's already a little bit wonky, then you sobering up will make it worse in the short term. Because what you're going to do is, what, you, what your institution is doing is, it has long ter- it's settling for long-term chronic pain rather than go through acute pain of dealing with it. And so when you take a stand, when you get clarity and you lead ahead, you should expect the sabotage and it will actually erupt because you're trying to bring the acute pain in order to address the actual issue. But if you press through it, if you can, if you can weather that storm, you can actually form the new sort of nucleus of a, of a healthy institution that operates well with boundaries and that knows like uh, we don't just get, we don't just succumb to social stampedes, we don't just get overwhelmed by emotional dominoes and we don't have reactive anxiety storms on the course through here. Like we actually operate um, sober mindedness can spread. And so when that happens, now you, you may have lost some people. That that will happen, but the what you have left is actually healthier. And then when you're adding to it, it's adding to health, not just adding cancer, not just, yeah. you know, accumulating unendingly because people are a blob of emotions that are looking to, you know, run left and then run right and then run left and run right. But there's something actually healthy about it. But you should, but you should really think. If, if I'm a sober-minded leader, the kind that Paul says we ought to be, then you ought to expect at some level for the kind of things that happened to Paul to happen to you. And right. where that guy went, there was usually a riot. <laughs> like that's like Paul, like in the book, like one of my key case studies is Paul in going back to Jerusalem in Acts 21 to 24. And that entire thing, he is as sober-minded as a day is long and everybody else is losing their ever loving minds. Yeah. And like the, the government doesn't know what to do, his accusers don't know what to do. There is just—it is just a big chaotic. Like all Jerusalem was in confusion. Why not? Be, Paul didn't even come to. This is what's amazing. He didn't even go there to preach. He just came back, and they were like, "Hey, can you go help out? These people have been saying lies about you. Would you go and prove them wrong?" And Paul's like, "I would be more than happy to put to rest this slander that I that I want Jews to stop, you know, respecting Moses." So yeah, I'll go to the temple and do it. And it's like, he's just going there to like try to quell this. And then kaboom, the whole thing blows up. And Paul's like, that's about what I expected. Can I have the mic? I, I would like to <laughs> preach now, right? Like he, like the mob gathers and he's like, I think this is a great opportunity to give my testimony and I will do so right now. And and the Tribune in that situation is so dumbstruck by the fact that Paul was getting beaten to death and now he wants to go back out there that he's like, I, I guess you can. I, I will let you go out and address this crowd. Um, and so it is a remarkable thing to see, like, the the riot comes because of Paul's sober-mindedness, not despite it. And that's true all throughout the book of Acts. Uh, it's been true through church history. And so that's the kind of leaders we need today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's not the sort of thing you're going to put on your brochure, raising funds for <laughs> church planning. Right. It's like, I want, to, I want to go to Cincinnati, and I'm going to try to start a few riots, and then uh, yeah. hopefully I'll get to preach the gospel while they're beating me with sticks.
0: <laughs> that's right. That's right.
1: Yeah, I've, I've thought of this so many times, like— I'll catch a news story or something like this about things happening in the world or politics, and I'll just think are there any grown ups mm-hmm. are there is there anybody who is and to use your language like are there any sober minded just steady people that aren't caught up in the frenzy and that i mean there's a place for anger there's a place for outrage but but to not be driven by it uh but right. f- but for to let that just inform kind of your mm-hmm be aware of, you know, how you're emotionally reacting to injustice around you. And, you know, that, I think that, that there's a good place for that, but it seemed like there's just this, the outrage is, that is the, the, the cruise control is set at outrage. Um, right. And there's no... Yes.
0: Uh, passions drive the it, show. Like that, We li- we live in a culture yeah. where passions run everything. And mm-hmm. It's not that emotions are bad. It's that they're good, but they have to be governed. God intended, he governs us, our, our intellect, our will, and then we govern our passions, those instincts, we got to, sh- and we have to learn to bring them to heal, to shepherd them, um, because we really do want to feel deeply. We, we, like, it's good to be outraged by the things that God, we had a, a we should have before things. We should weep with those humans. Mm-hmm. our emotions really are important, but in, in fact, they're so important that they cannot be allowed to run a show. That's how important yeah. they are. You don't put them yeah. in charge and you don't put them yeah. in charge of you and you don't put them in, you don't put other people's emotion in charge of you. Right. That's the, yeah. that's the, the, the trap and the trick is you can't let yours or other people's be the guiding light and everything in our culture says, no feelings run, Fe- feelings must be validated, encouraged. Yeah. Um, that's your most authentic self. That's, that's what you have to follow, follow your heart, follow other people's heart, follow the people's hurt feelings and. And what, what we need is no, that's not what governments. There's a better way. Um, and if we do it, it's actually beautiful, wonderful, life giving. Um, it actually is a shelter and a protection for other people. To to have leaders that aren't like um one of the ways that uh, our um, the publisher said, you know, part of what we're trying to get at with this book uh, is you want to be the sort of leader that when the crisis happens and you're not there, when you walk in the room, everybody goes, oh, thank God. Yeah. Right? Like that when, like when everything, every, everything's been lit on fire, every, it's, it's a crisis and everything, but you want to be the sort of leader that when you walk in the room, everybody breathes a sigh of relief, like, okay. And it's not because you're omnicompetent and know everything, but it's just that what you're bringing in is some gravity and you're bringing joy. Yeah. You're, you're doing the first in, last out, laughing loudest, like I'm going to be here and I'm going to bear it the longest. I'm going to be the first to bear it, bear it the longest, and I'm going to do so with joy in my heart. Even when there's a scanty meal in the land, I'm gonna I'm gonna rejoice because I know God, and I'm glad to do this. And everybody goes, "Oh, thank God!" That's the kind yeah. of leader you want to be, not the sort of leader who they go, "We've got to get this fixed before he shows up," because if he does, it, you know, like you don't want to yeah. be the guy who brings more um, angst into the room, who just brings your own, you know, uh, insecurities, your own fears, uh, your own defensiveness and reactivity into the room, and it's just gonna you're you're just gonna be another big thunderclap into the big storm um don't be that instead be the one who who steadies it um and who they go okay now 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 we're going to be okay because he's he's coming in with jesus he's bringing jesus into this room because he's he's steady jesus has steadied him
1: yeah i love that may god give us more leaders like that man amen (laughs) so so important uh I mean, I, I, I could talk about this for another hour, but we gotta we gotta wrap it up here for the sake of time. Yeah. Um. So, do you have any final comments or, um, anything that you wanted to hit on that you, you know, forgot about but would like address here at the end? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think uh, probably the only thing is, is it has to start with your own. Um, everybody wants to save the world. No one wants to help mom with the dishes. It starts in your house. It starts in your own. I um, you know, this is a it's a convicting thing for me when I think about like, um. The most important leadership I exercise every day, um uh, or in my life is the one with the four other people who live in my house, my wife and my three boys. That's where it is. And that's, that's where I want my the bulk of, you know, my first prayers, what I want, to, I want to be there, my first responsibility, I want to be there. And so, um, if you're, if you're a leader and you're thinking, where do I start? It's like, Let's start there. That's the fundamental qualification for all leadership is, um, can you manage your household well and lead there? Um, and then work and work out from there. feet, learn from, I learn by, uh, all the different places where I have to lead, but I want to apply it sort of from the inside out. Right. That's that, that's where, that's where again, start from the inner circles and work its way out. Trust God to, um, to bless it in every step along the way. Fantastic. Well, brother, um, do you have any, um,
1: any books to promote or where can we find you? What, what, uh, yeah. What, what are some follow-up ways to follow up uh, after this and yeah can put them in the show notes too
0: for sure um well so about know uh, eight or nine months ago I had a book come out called courage how the Go- gospel creates Christian fortitude so that one's been out for for a bit um and it's relevant to some of the things uh that we're talking about um and will probably be I think uh sort of the, some of the stuff I'll talk about at the conference in April um so if if that um, appeals to you uh, then uh, leadership and emotional sabotage is available for pre-order right now at emotional Uh And so you can go there and, uh, and pre-order that. I think it ships start shipping in about a month in, in uh, March. And, uh, and I think uh, one offer that the publishers put together uh, is uh, if you buy five copies uh, for your team or for your pastoral team or your, or your school board or whatever it is uh, that we can set up a private Q and a with me uh, after you've read the book uh, to kind of, a debrief talk applied, do some Q and a. Um, and so if that has appeal, then buy a bunch of them and, and, uh, and we'll make that, we'll make that happen. But I am I'm excited about the book. It is the sort of, I, it's a, uh, it's a small book. It's a short book. It's a, a real, I, I read it, did the audio book yesterday. Uh, and it took me about three and a half hours to read the whole thing. So when you think about, man, that, there's years, there's years that went into those three and a half hours. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and, right. uh, and so it's an, it's, it's an interesting thing to go like, well, that was it. That was it. And, uh, but I do think it's trying to get at the heart of what, what kind of leaders do we need? And it doesn't answer every problem because I'm not going to be able to do that for you. But I'm hopeful that by drawing attention to the way that leadership works, what's needed, uh, what the challenges are and the particular pressures that, that God will work it in, in your own, in whatever situation you're facing.
1: Yeah. One thing I appreciated about the book, just like you sent me a copy and I, uh, was able to read, uh. I guess a, a late yeah. draft of it, but yeah, you 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 have a good economy of words um, hmm. and good labels. Uh, a lot of times, hmm. we there are ideas or things, that phenomena we experience or, or observe, hmm. but sometimes we just need a label that captures it. And so, white hmm. knight is a good example. And I, I wrote I wrote down several today as you were talking. <laughs> Progressive girl flop. That's like, I know exactly what that is, but I uh, didn't have a word for it, but now I do. Um, name so, the world, name so the good. world. That's what we do.
0: Adam, <laughs> Adam, name the animals. We're just going to keep naming stuff. That's right.
1: All right. Well, um, that that brings us to the end of the episode. Uh, thanks for tuning into the Plain Speech podcast. Don't forget to register for the King's Domain Conference. If you want to find out more information about that, you can go to genderedvirtue.com. You can also get there by going to moscowmood.com, but that has all the information about the <laughs> conference. And uh, Joe will be one of our keynote speakers, and uh, you're gonna you're you're gonna love it. Uh, I, I talked to Toby Sumter, and we've we've mapped out his his content. So I'm I'm super excited about what we've got in store for you. This will be very encouraging and edifying to you. Gendervirtue.com, um, and. All the things that podcasters say, like, subscribe, leave a comment, uh, send us money or something. I don't have a Patreon, but people say that. Anyway, uh, <laughs> thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.